Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Actually, it's Charles Marshall here on behalf of Neil Garfield. And we are here today on June 11th, 2020. I am joined by Bill Padalo, and as always, uh, I'm very uh, pleased to have Bill on the show. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Charles. Always good to be here. Uh, so we're going to reprise a show that we intended to air a couple of weeks ago. There were some technical issues, uh, and we will air that show now as we as we speak. And uh, as per usual, this show is coming at this moment live. Uh, from San Diego, California, and Bill typically is out in Montana, though he's often on the road because his casework takes him all over the country. I think a little less in the COVID era. Is that uh, is, is that is that true, Bill? Yeah, a little less travel this day, but I think um, it's going to get pretty crazy come fall. <laughs> it's all backed up. <laughs> Yeah, I'm finding that in the California state actions that I'm involved in, the federal actions have been proceeding uh, pretty much on track. The state actions are definitely backed up, and there has been a kind of unofficial uh, moratorium. So in any event, on this TAM aspect, and we'll go into the history in a little bit, uh, I do want to say uh, first, that Neil and I, of course, really appreciate uh, any kind of donor support that we get through this show and any kind of takeaway that listeners are able to get from the show. uh, We ask, uh, Neil particularly asks that you donate, and you can do that right on his blog at livinglies.com. So TTAM actions, they are quite historical. They really go back hundreds of years. There's, there's been a principle, particular, particularly in Anglo law and then later Anglo-American law, by which individuals were empowered to essentially sue on behalf of the sovereign. So, of course, sovereigns have actual agents. Sometimes they are simply government employees, and sometimes they're companies contracted with to actually fulfill certain government functions. But in the spirit of traditional Anglo-American, not just jurisprudence, but social, political policy, there has developed this well-long-standing practice 
um, essentially it's, it's it's known among uh, among a lot of uh, a lot of labels attached to these types of actions. One is a private right of action. Essentially, the government is acknowledging that if it has a bunch of private actors, not even government agents in any sense of the word, acting on their behalf, in this case, essentially becoming collectors for and you know fraudulent uh, acts against the government, which is what KETAM is all about. So the historical and even the contemporary manifestation of KETAM actions, it's essentially empowering private individuals with legislative statutory remedies that those private actors can use to collect on behalf of the government. Uh, oftentimes, the KETAM action is going to involve a prove-out of, of what the defrauded situation against the government is. It's not as if these are set up for a race judicata type arrangement where you just go in with a court judgment that the government already has. The whole purpose here is where the government, despite all their reach, despite all their money, despite all their act activity, they still have a number of defraud situations where they haven't acted, they may not even know about it in detail, or they may simply not have the money or intel to, to, to delve into it at the time within a departmental level. So an individual can come in and then act on behalf of the government. Now, you can actually hypothetically bring these actions even if the government does not join them in a real plaintiff's capacity as a sort of co-plaintiff. That's a more difficult road. Judges are more skeptical of those. But the bottom line, the American manifestation of the KETAM actions largely dates back to the False Claims Act. They did exist prior to that, just as they have existed for hundreds of years. Nevertheless, in the American context, we see them come to the fore and become a kind of big deal in the legal arena uh, toward the end of the Civil War, where Lincoln decided to get past the False Claims Act, and so he shepherded that through the kind of creaky legislature at the time. And this was, of course, very, very near wartime. I'm not sure the Civil War ended at that time. That would have been April 1865. False Claims Act is from 1865. Nevertheless, a lot of what the False Claims Act at that time was intended to do was provide private rights of action on behalf of government, where government was overextended, uh, where a lot of civil departments were underfunded because so much of the money available had gone into the military uh, efforts of the Civil War. Plus, there was a huge amount. There were people impersonating government actors. There were people uh, soliciting their private rights before government in an openly fraudulent way in some cases that wasn't exposed till later. And sometimes they were facilitated by certain government actors. 
and that would not prevent a key TAM action either. The bottom line is if there was some fraud where the government was on the end of that fraud, not the purveyor of it, then this private right of action would kick in and the key TAM action could, could lead to real substantial monies being taken back on the part of the government built into the False Claims Act, which was, interestingly enough, uh, essentially, the False Claims Act, it didn't become a dead letter, but by the early 1900s, it wasn't much much used. And then in World War II, it was essentially, uh, essentially reprised through some kind of a formal amendment. This was during World War II. And it was largely for the same reason that government was overextended, civil government was underfunded, military operations were swallowing much more of federal uh, the federal purse than they do now even. So it's very interesting how this has all come about historic, historically. Now the foreclosure arena has seen a number of TTM actions and these do take uh, a typical a typical line. It's a bit complex. What Bill's going to be talking about is a is a very interesting case and kind of some some thoughts and derivations based on that. And so Bill, why don't you go ahead and uh, jump right in? Sure, I'd be glad to. Thanks, Charles. Uh, good history there on Quietom, by the way. Um, Everyone is familiar with probably the most famous Tom case that uh, led to the whole robo-signing scandal, and that was from uh, Lynn Simoniak, who kind of blew the lid off that whole robo-signing thing. And uh, that one got a lot of publicity, obviously. Um, the, par- the particular case I'm going to talk about now is very interesting because it's really gone under the radar. At least I seem to have my eyes and ears to... Uh, the ground when it comes to these types of cases and these types of uh, winning cases, really, because so far it's resulted in uh, one of the uh, defendants settling for $41 million, um, and now there's still claims proceeding against uh, other defendants and law firms. But anyway, um, I hadn't heard about this case until I was doing an investigation on uh, in a case in North Carolina, and is one of the typical steps when I investigate and I look at uh, a loan that claims to have been securitized, and I go in and look into the internal data, oftentimes I'm going to see uh, remittance data going to the from the trust administrators going to the investors claiming that at some point in the past or whenever that the loan had been modified. And I usually reach out to the client and ask for those modification documents or um, evidence you know, regarding that transaction, and you'd be surprised at how many clients come back and say, uh, I'm, I have no idea about any modification. I was never offered a modification or I didn't apply for a modification um, or I was turned down for a modification. And so uh, I had wrote an article about this um, in 2016 about fake modifications on the part of many of the servicers back in the day when HAMP was active and the servicers were um, under the law, given a stipend um, if they modified loans to any degree, and that stipend usually averaged two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars a case or whatnot. 
And so I, I recognized there was a huge fraud problem with false claims being filed on these HAMP modifications on a wide scale by uh, pretty much all the servicers, not just the ones named in this Tom. So first of all, let me give you the name of this case. Um, I stumbled upon it. Um, it was filed on the last day or so of 2017, so it's really not that old. And it's still currently in play, but it's, um, it's in the Southern District, or I should say the, uh, well, well, the District of Colorado Federal Court, and it's the United States who's, who decided to intervene and take over in the case, which uh, was a tremendous help because, um, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, <laughs> obviously the, the muscle of having the U.S. DOJ involved um, seems to bring out a lot more documents and discovery than we can get on our own, <laughs> Charles. Uh, I don't know why that is, I wonder. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> it's, so it's the U.S. and the relator, his name is James Heron, H-E-R-O-N, and the case number is uh, 117-CV-03084 versus Aurora Loan Services, LLC, and a lot of the Aurora entities and Nation Star Mortgage. And then it actually goes after a foreclosure law firm, a big one um, out of Colorado, and individual employees of that law firm, which is uh, very interesting as um, this complaint spells out. The, uh, the 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 scheme here now the scheme goes a lot further than just false uh, claims for fake modifications um, which is very significant but the uh, the relator here is a homeowner in uh, Colorado and I'll tell you uh, he put out a declaration in this case that you know being a a sleuth in this area for 10 years and doing all the research that I've done, um, I'll tell you, I've got a lot of respect for the amount of work and effort that went into this declaration by Mr. Heron because he gives a just a phenomenal amount of information and details and evidence to support uh, not only the claims for the false mods, but he, it's all about the forging and fabrication of the, the documents of foreclosure, primarily the notes and the note endorsements, and how the uh, law firms are a part of that scheme, and how uh, they've been going about this, and you know, billing for the for the uh, uh, acts of endorsing these notes and forging these notes, and there's just there's so much information here. It's fantastic. Um, but what's so useful about it is that, and this this is going to be useful for everybody, because as long as I've been investigating and, and having been involved in litigation and discovery, we have sought documents specific to the note history, the, the custody, custodial history of the notes, when the endorsements were put on, if the originals still exist, all of this information, and of course, we are stonewalled, they're compelled, the witnesses say we don't have any information in our systems regarding that, and we just, it's, um, it's the same story over and over and over. But what this complaint and what this declaration spells out very clearly and shows examples of is that the servicers here, including NationStar, who the claims are still, uh, have survived and are still proceeding against, they have extremely detailed information 
on every aspect of that note, that note history, who endorsed it when, whether the collateral files are tainted, uh, when the servicing switches hands. So, for example, you know, you always hear, and Neil wrote an article this week about the boarding process and how phony that is. Well, that's absolutely the truth. There, there is no boarding process. In fact, the shared data systems that they use, and all of these servicers are using uh, MSP primarily, it's the same type of system, and they're all going through Black Knight. But they all have this information that um, has inf that gives data regarding when the new servicer, servicing is transferred, for example, if that collateral file, all the issues and defects and problems that they have and the problems that they have to overcome uh, in trying to uh, fix or correct these literally fatally defective chains of title and so on and so forth, and, and what needs to be done to create the illusion of standing, really, and to proceed and foreclose and take people's homes. And in these screenshots, which we now know, and we can specifically go after and compel, and that we can say this is clearly in their custody and control, you're going to see the invoicing. Uh, so, for example, he puts in his declaration a very, very clear screenshots of how this particular law firm charged $166 fee uh, at the date and time that they uh, created the, the phony endorsement upon the note. And it's just, uh, I, I can't tell people enough, and I'm going to hopefully post uh, some of the information here soon when I can get a free moment. I'm, I'm very busy right now, but I want to post this so that folks can either look up this case on PACER or they can go in and take a look at uh, the information that's in there because it's a treasure trove of, of, uh, of, of great information on these on these parties and what they're doing. Now, Aurora in this complaint, and, and the, when the Fed stepped in here, the, the, the first party uh, that got knocked off, so to speak, with a settlement is Aurora Loan Services and Aurora Commercial Corp. Now, that entity has been in uh, longstanding bankruptcy, so it's kind of like getting blood from a turnip. There's not a lot of money there, allegedly, but they were still able to procure a $41 million settlement. So. For this particular homeowner, uh, on these relator cases, typically the relator gets 25% or 30% of whatever's recovered there. So you know, it's about a $10 million payday there uh, for Mr. Heron, and the claims uh, against these other parties again are still proceeding. But when you when you go in, when you look at the, these entities under these umbrellas, we're talking about Lehman Brothers, Aurora, um, and all the subsidiaries that were under these entities on umbrella, when they were in the days securitizing billions and billions of these loans and hundreds of these trusts, there's entities like Structured Assets, Securities Corp, the securitizing, I mean, all of these parties, if you have them out there, folks, in your chain of title or, you, or there's somewhere where you took out a loan from these parties back in the day or whatever it might be, um, this is invaluable information because what they're doing and the reasons why they're forging and fabricating this stuff still to this day is because these these notes were destroyed. They don't have the proper documentation and paperwork. And there's and and now um, it's going to get really interesting to see how these individuals in the law firms are going to be treated in this for having played a part in it. So that's that's 
one area I'm real uh, interested in seeing. But also, uh, going back to the uh, false modifications, uh, this stuff's going to haunt for a long time uh, these parties because, and I don't, you know, it appears to me, and maybe you can speak to this in a moment, Charles, but the statute of limitations on some of this um, tends to, or seems that once it's discovered, uh, it, we might still have quite a bit of room and space ahead of us to um, come up with very similar causes of action in quiet time complaints because, uh, for example, I, well, I'm not going to go into every specific name here on, on the servicers, but um, but if you're out there and, and you're, you're still suffering from the effects of being lied to about a modification or whatever, um, you know, send me an email. I mean, it'd be worth running a, a quick check on the data to see if uh, a false modification was ever um, reported on your particular loan because that that uh, might be a, a good way to get your foot in the door in, um, in, in whatever your causes of action might be if you were wrongfully foreclosed or if, or if they've proffered what you suspect is uh, fabricated phony documents uh, in your case. Um, so again, this is a really, really wonderful roadmap. It's a great win. Um, I haven't seen it posted anywhere, and I think part of the reason is it's still active um, against these parties, and they've done a really good job of <laughs> keeping it sort of under the radar as of right now, but I really want to get the word out here because um, the DOJ's involvement clearly has been huge in this case, um, allowing us to now prove and show that not only have they been concealing this evidence when compelled to produce it, and they've been perjuring themselves by saying they don't have this kind of information, and then their witnesses come in and basically play the uh, I know nothing um, card is all completely false. And now that we can get a peek under the hood and see exactly where this information is, I think it really is going to prove across the board once and for all that if they stonewall you on this stuff and if they refuse to produce what we now know they have, um, it's it's going to <laughs> definitely lead to better outcomes um, when push comes to shove in litigation. Charles? Uh, absolutely. And I think one of the advantages over a key TAM type action over, let's say, the types of settlements that governments have, particularly the federal government, but also big state governments like California. Uh, most listeners have heard of various settlements that have been garnered with either servicers or the big banks themselves, either acting as securitized trust or acting as servicers. And in either role, there have been a number of major settlements over the years, some of them involving even billions of dollars. Uh, those are government enforcement actions. And what's interesting about the key TAM uh, angle is, as you note, it, it can take on the color and tenor of a more traditional lawsuit, including bringing in specific individuals. And I think some of the 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 kind of um, potential results, particularly if these did go to trial, 
uh, it has the potential to expose even more the actual individual wrongdoing that's going on on the other side. Whereas in the big global, you might even call them shakedown actions on the part of the government, where they essentially force settlement even from the major institutional uh, lenders and servicers like Wells Fargo and Bank of America. I mean, those are good up to a point. They don't really benefit individual borrowers that much per se. The precedential use of those settlements is limited. It is available, and I have seen it effectively used, but the play of using that in current cases or later cases, the utility of that is limited. Frankly, from the big institutional players, the big banks, they are, I think, seeing that as a cost of doing business. And even if the money involved is less in these key TAM actions, the remedy that ends up uh, at the end of the settlement. Uh, and certainly the risk involved if there were a trial win is really more substantial than the type of uh, government civil actions that we've seen that are almost kind of quasi-criminal, but they're really civil. So it is complex. It's it's hard for me to unpack in, a, in our, our form and our format here. The intricacies of all that, I will say, though, that the key TAM actions do provide yet another avenue. They are yet another arena for borrowers. I also will say that the availability of them is really quite limited. It takes a lot to bring one of these actions. It takes a lot of attorney resources, even if you are dealing with a smaller firm, to bring these actions, it will take a lot of discovery. It will take a lot of uh, pleading work, intel, analysis. Uh, but at the end of the day, if all of that comes together sufficiently from the key camp planet, uh, number one, that will often bring the government in, even if they're not a joint party at the beginning. And Number two, especially if the government gets involved, as you were mentioning, it does increase the heft of the case, and the other side is more likely to settle. And if they don't settle, let's say earlier rather than later, the discovery process is going to expose a a lot of fraud in these cases, and certainly that's what's happened here. I think there is precedential use for, 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 for this case, and in certain contexts. In the servicing world, and certainly Bill, Neil, and I will be looking at that from this case, seeing how we can apply it in different contexts. And, uh, yeah, I I'll think. Add- oh, I'm sorry. I, I was, was going to say, yeah, I think the take here is that uh, there's a lot to piggyback off of uh, for the individual cases and homeowners out there um, who are fighting these foreclosures to take advantage of a lot of this uh, information that comes to the surface in these types of cases. Uh, yes, absolutely. And it's also proof, you know, which I did bring up uh, when I was on Neil's show as a guest last week, uh, I was talking about uh, the recent uh, appellate case where I was very pleased to report that the uh, court had 
had, in fact, done the right thing and remanded the case, a win for the homeowner, Massoud versus J.P. Morgan Chase is the short name of that case. That case proves, this TTAM action proves, there are wins for our side that prove that the government uh, and the institutional uh, kind of aspects of the government, whether it's the court, whether it's the federal government, whether it's sometimes state governments, that it's not just, not just the sinkhole in those arenas and those institutions are not just corrupt. They do the right thing sometimes, and it's Neil's purpose, it's my purpose, it's purpose that they do the right thing more often. Hence this show, and hence why we're emphasizing that this is one aspect to TAM, and of course it will take a lot more follow-up on the part of listeners to unpack everything. Uh, we just wanted to introduce further what that involves. And thank you, Bill, for being with me today. And you will be back next week. And so long for now. Thanks, Charles. Good night. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.